This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings engaging video and audio lectures presented by top professors and professionals on a wide variety of subjects to your fingertips. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to $90 off the original price of four courses within the Everyday Gourmet series of instructional cooking courses. Choose from Essential Secrets of Spices and Cooking, Making Healthy Food Taste Great, Baking Pastries and Desserts, or Making Great Meals in Less Time for only $9.95. This great price of $9.95 is only available for a limited time, so order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal, who has been glued to his DVR, re-watching those exciting Benghazi hearings again and again and again. Bill, you've got to give it up and move on. Good point, Michael. Uh, it's hard, though, you know, when you're that gripping, uh, um, uh, sympathetic witness like that, someone you're just rooting for, being persecuted by those mean Republicans who actually think maybe it's legitimate to ask questions about why four people, four Americans died in Benghazi that day, why they lied to the American uh, people about the cause of what had happened. Uh, but, you know, those Republicans, they just they just they, they got to learn, as you say, to move on. I, I just I, at one point, I really wondered if uh, Trey Gowdy from my home state of South Carolina and Elijah Cummings weren't going to actually stand up, roll up their sleeves and say, OK, it's time for <laughs> it's time to fight it out. It was a lot more tension between the committee members than there seemed to be between the members and Hillary herself. Yeah, that would have been that would have been exciting. I think you know. I think they've gotten a bit of a bum rap. The committee members. It's hard to do that kind of thing. Hillary was able to stipulate that the hearing would go forever, but there would only be one hearing, which is very much in her advantage. Sympathetic. They're kind of making her stay so late, right. and then they don't get to come back and do research and say, "Hey, you said this," but other documents show that. And of course, the way it was ten minutes each, with the Democrats just filibustering and defending her. But I thought the they brought out two or three things that will be very damaging for Hillary Clinton over the next year, and I think the media interpretation of this, the media coverage, A, it's so biased and so pro-Hillary. The New York Times front page has a picture of her looking radiant and sort of angelic almost. Uh, <laughs> Steve Hayes was at the hearing and said, you know, half the reporters are texting and emailing with Hillary's top staff, you know, sharing comments and thoughts about what was happening. Um, and then, you know, she did okay and she did do okay. And so on style points, you can say, oh, she, you know, held her, held her own, kept composed, uh, gave coherent answers and stuff. But at the end of the day, facts do matter. And at the end of the day, we learned that she told, she, she told her daughter on the, uh, uh, was it the night of the hearing or the next right. morning, the I night guess, of the night attack. of Benghazi, that the uh, that it was a terror attack and had nothing to do with the video. And then she was cheerfully, not cheerfully, but she told the families of those who had killed, we're going to get that guy who did the video. And she let the administration, of which she was a part, tell the American public that it was all about the video. I think that's devastating. And she told, I guess, the Egyptian prime minister also. That's right. Um, that she knew it was a terror attack. So, I, I mean, the heart of this has always been they covered up the truth, partly because it was two months before President Obama's re-election. And she was part of that cover-up. And I think we now know that more definitively than we knew it before. And that's a fact. And and there are also facts about her failure to take uh, adequate precautions on security and all the, uh, my close friend, Chris Stevens, with whom she never spoke. Those are sort of, that's a smaller kind of thing. But generally, the, the extent to which it's all been a big PR operation at state, she was wasn't serious about the job she was supposed to be doing. I think I think this will end up having been damaging to her. I'm curious about why Republicans wouldn't step up now, one of the super PACs or the party itself, and grab that 
that moment, that in, in as you point out, indisputable moment. There's the email saying, hey, it was an Al-Qaeda-like attack. And then three days later, standing by the coffins and saying, I'm going to get the guy who made the video. Wouldn't it be smart to pl- to plant that now while it's fresh and leave it to bake until next, you know, a year ago, a year from now? You know, I get, yeah, I think it would be, but that requires some imagination and dexterity and these ah, super PACs are all, you know, they're very exactly right. And maybe they would say, you know, you do a million dollars of ads, what, no, what does that matter? It's such a small buy nationally. And then, you know, at the end of the day, people have to come back with that in the summer and right. fall of next year. But I, I tend to agree. I do think the Swift Boat Vets showed how damaging early, get, laying the predicate early for making clear, for, for, right. for exposing someone's record really does help. But the Republicans are busy with their own races, obviously, and everyone's, you know, trying to prop up their favorite candidate, I suppose. And uh, But the media is really beyond belief. I mean, the, the kind of degree to which they now, it turns out for all their talk about wanting races and wanting to be have good scrutiny of candidates and encouraging competition, they want to coronate Hillary. Aren't you, aren't you struck by that this week? It's really crazy. Yeah, there's no sense of loss of Biden getting out other than the sense of loss regarding his personal story, you know, about his son dying. But there's none of the, oh, man, you know, where's the guy? He's he's going to finally challenge her in a serious way. They didn't want to see that challenge, apparently. And uh, there, there was almost gleeful reporting on CNN and MSNBC when Biden got out, when when the issue of Hillary Clinton came up. Right, and now the narrative is uh, that she's inevitable, and it's uh, she's so strong, the best week of her campaign. I don't buy any of that. I think the Benghazi hearing was damaging for her, and Biden getting out could end up being damaging for her. I think it's good for Republicans in any case, because Biden would have been a better candidate, I think, than Hillary A. B. If Hillary had defeated Biden and Sanders, she would have been stronger as a result of that than now. She'll get no credit for beating Bernie Sanders, really. What if she incidentally loses a couple of early primaries to Bernie Sanders? Then she really looks weak. I'm not sure she would beat him. Maybe she'd come back and sort of muscle through like Walter Mondale in 1984 against Gary Hart or something like that. But that's not a a great precedent for the general election. And there is some chance she could sort of blow up. And then the Democrats are left with Bernie Sanders or someone else has to try to get in late. I mean, I think that if I were a Democrat looking at, I mean, the Republicans have their own problems, but they're now down to a field of three. Martin O'Malley, who's just beyond pathetic, and a 73-year-old socialist from Vermont, and Hillary Clinton, a 67-year-old former Secretary of State in an administration whose foreign policy is manifestly a total disaster and who has, to say the least, ethics and credibility problems, and just objectively, whose favorable, unfavorable rating is underwater by, what, 15, 20 points among the general electorate? Uh, it's a number no one who's ever run for president and one has had. I, I think objectively... The Democrats are in very bad shape for 2016. Well, I would call you out for leaving out Link Chafee, but of course, the D.C. shaking news of Friday was the man of granite chose to get out. And all I can say is my hopes to one day enjoy my uh, beverages by the leader have gone away. Yeah, Link Chafee getting out. That was a big story today. <laughs> uh, the bigger story on the, I think, more interesting story in a way was the Bush campaign uh, cutting salaries for everyone. A couple of young guys I know are working there. I hope they don't take too much of a hit. Miami isn't so cheap to live in. But on the other hand, they're cutting the Miami staff a lot and sending a lot of these guys out to Des Moines and Manchester, New Hampshire, and places where the early primaries are. This is your classic uh, desperation thing. Normally, when campaigns do this, they're two steps from from closing the doors. Now, occasionally you do it and you rally and it shows the donors that you're not wasting any money and you're, you know, trim and lean and mean. And maybe Bush can recover. I'd say Bush really, there's a lot riding for him on this next debate 
what is it, Wednesday night, I think. I mean, if Bush does not do well, I think the whole thing could just crater. Bush, Bush may not be still in the race right. when, we get to the, when we get to the Iowa caucus. And here's the irony. You re- it's hard to use the word crater on a guy who's at 7%. That's not exactly a crater. It's more no, but he did start off at 15 or 18 and, sure. and, and, and was thought to be the front runner. I mean, it is pretty amazing what's happened. People have been away now taking it for granted, internalized it. Trump's been in the lead for three months or something. And the idea that Trump would be, you know, sitting up there in the mid-20s, high-20s, and Bush would be in single digits and now cutting staff. I mean, it's a pretty astounding reversal from what I would expect. I agree. So uh, where is the Trump campaign and how significant is it that two polls show Ben Carson beating him in Iowa? I think it's significant. I've always, I do think I was early in saying peak Trump and saying that Trump had had, had peaked and it would go downhill. And I never thought he would, the bubble would just burst. That's not how campaigns usually work unless there's some massive scandal. I always thought the air would go slowly out of the blue. And I kind of think that's beginning to happen. Look, it's happening in Iowa, the state where people are paying the most attention, where the most candidates are spending the most time. So in that respect, I mean, Iowa is idiosyncratic. Obviously, it'll be different when, you know, nine or whatever it is, southern states vote on one day on March 1st. But on the other hand, in a way, you could argue it's kind of a leading indicator. I've always thought Carson was underrated, wildly underrated here in Washington and elsewhere. He has real support out there. Uh, people have read the books. They've seen the movie. They've, they've heard him speak. They're inspired by his example. He's a nice person, more so than Trump, I think one could safely say. Um, I don't personally not convinced that Ben Carson should be the nominee either. Uh, but I, it is interesting that, that he's now in two different polls, I think, what, seven, eight points ahead of That's right. Trump. And so I think it shows that all the with Trump, the way I'd put it is this. I think I, I was pretty early in saying you got to take Trump seriously and his message certainly should be internalized by the other Republican candidates, something, a point that none of them seems to have listened to at all. And they're busy going on acting as if Trump didn't exist or wishing he didn't exist, which is stupid in its own way. So I was early in sort of seeing the Trump message had some uh, some some resonance. I was, I think I over, I, I was also early in probably thinking that Trump would Fade, but I do think the fact that Carson now is ahead of Trump in Iowa shows that the race is much more volatile. That's, it remains very volatile. The notion that now Trump could well be the nominee, the, the kind of hysteria among GOP establishment types and mainstream media types about a week ago when they woke up and said, oh, my God, Trump really is still hanging in there. Oh, he's going to be the nominee. You know, right. like there's nothing in between. There's nothing in between. He's going to collapse right away. And uh, and he's going to be the nominee. It's so silly the way they, they rush like lemmings to whatever their latest, you know, conclusion is. But as always, I think they were a contrarian indicator. And I think we will see more of a Carson move over the next few weeks. But it does open it up for the other candidates if one of them would just be able to develop a sort of compelling message for the for, for Republican primary voters. No, I agree. And that's what's so frustrating to me is, come on, guys, beat Trump. Just beat him. Just go out and show you're better and beat him. And But the, the problem is you can't get any media coverage because Trump sucks up all the oxygen. So you could be standing right next to him, you know, uh, destroying him in an argument and showing your plans are better. You're not going to get coverage. The guy who does get coverage, Bill, is Paul Ryan. And now that Paul Ryan has essentially been begged to become Speaker of the House, what kind of speaker should we expect? Yeah, I think the begging was a little over the top and Paul's reluctance to do it and family time at all wasn't quite the way I sort of expect politics to work. Having said that, objectively, again, for what was supposed to be a bad month for Republicans, the, objectively, they've ended up with a very able communicator and a very attractive young man as Speaker of the House. And it's an improvement on John Boehner. It's an improvement on what Kevin McCarthy would have been. What he could do over the next year, that's very questionable. And he may even have to accept a you know kind of crummy deal on keeping the government open. 
that the conservatives, including us, probably won't like very much. But I think he has enough credibility and support with conservatives that as long as he doesn't touch immigration, I don't think he will, um, he'll retain wide support in the House. And just generally, I think it'll be a sort of fresh air. So the Democrats have who? Nancy Pelosi and uh, Harry Reid running the House and the Senate for them. And the Republicans had Mitch McConnell and John Boehner. And suddenly, if I'm not mistaken, McConnell, Pelosi, and Reid are all in their 70s. Suddenly, hey, the Republicans right. have someone who's in, I guess, what is Brian in his 40s. Uh, as as Speaker of the House, I'm so I'm, I'm I'm pleased about that. Yeah, it is like the net outcome is good. And that's what I wonder. Rolling back to uh, Benghazi as we wrap up, as you look at what the net effect is going to be. One of the things I think helped Hillary yesterday is you saw her looking pretty presidential. I thought you know, she's behind that desk, she's confronting these people. She looks good. She looks like she belongs there. So that was the the good move for her. But that is going to fade. You know what you see on TV lasts a few weeks. Ask Carly Fiorina, and then it you know, fades away. But those points about how you know Sid Blumenthal, her corrupt lackey working for some for some business interests in Libya, had her hotline phone number, but Chris Stevens begged for security and couldn't get it. Those facts about she told her family the truth and the Benghazi family's lies. I think those are going to to linger. And if those that storyline is propped up by a Paul Ryan led house that seems like they know how to get stuff done and, you know, and, and have some smart ideas that he can actually articulate, we could be in pretty good shape. You know, I think that's absolutely right. I think thinking about things in the way you put it was good in, in terms of the net effect as opposed to getting wrapped up in sort of the performance, judging a daily performance for a day. So if that's going to be the long term, this isn't, you know, a, a performance of a, I don't know, a, it's a ballet or something right. where you go, you look at it, hey, that person was good, that person was bad, that's it. No, this is like there are actually after effects that often are more important than whatever the, you know, the, the single day uh, judgment of sort of style points is. So I very much agree and I agree on, on Paul Ryan. And so I think things are in good shape. Hillary is a bad candidate. Paul Ryan will be a good speaker. So the only minor problem and obstacle the Republican Party faces is it's not clear they have a very good presidential candidate uh, to nominate. Uh, and, but they've got time for one of them to get good. And that's something else. Yes. That's something else we've seen from Hillary. She's been getting good lately, too. There's no reason why the Republicans can as well. This debate Wednesday will be interesting. I'm really curious to see whether Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, to take two who are able young senators, will do a little better job of getting beyond making intelligent 60-second points. And that's how the debates push you, unfortunately. But it's a bigger sort of vision that can compete with the Trump vision or even the Carson vision in a way of, of you know, making America great or restoring honor and integrity to the Oval Office and that sort of thing. So I think this debate actually next week will be a little more important than your typical debate of this kind. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.